Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello. It's a little over a month since half of Australia's population, those in New South Wales and Victoria, have entered the most recent phase of COVID-19 restrictions and lockdown. The current stay-at-home orders have reached uh, undesirable milestones over the past fortnight. Melbourne has reached a total of 200 days in lockdown since the pandemic began, making it one of the longest periods of stay-at-home orders in the world. And Sydney's lockdown, while shorter overall, is on track to become the longest continuous period of lockdown in Australia. The further bad news is that, unlike previous lockdowns, the desired suppression of COVID-19 cases is not eventuating as quickly as we'd hope. New South Wales has reached some 1,600 new cases per day, and Victoria is at almost 500 new cases and quickly approaching the previous peak from August last year. The positive news is that Australia's vaccination efforts are making a significant difference. New South Wales outbreak has resulted in almost 200 deaths. Each of these is, of course, a tragedy, but these numbers are far fewer than the more than 800 deaths that occurred during last year's Melbourne outbreak, despite case numbers being substantially larger. COVID-19's case fatality rate in Australia this year has been 0.4%, which is far lower than the almost 3% in previous outbreaks. Speaking of vaccination, Australia's vaccination effort continues at an encouraging pace. Almost 70% of Australians have now received a first vaccination, and more than 40% are fully vaccinated. At this rate, Australia appears on track to achieve a 70% milestone of the population fully vaccinated by the end of October and an 80% milestone by the end of November, targets that government leaders are linking to lifting lockdown restrictions and opening up freedom of movement again. Nevertheless, the continued lockdowns make life extremely difficult for many Australian people and families. Australia's homeless population are one group particularly hard hit. Our homeless have lost access to many points of support and connection on which they rely. While many crisis services remain open, opportunities for in-person contact and interaction are severely limited as our cities and streets remain highly restricted. And many of our homeless, especially young people, have difficulty accessing the online replacement services that have been set up for schools and health and other essential services during this period of physical distancing. To help us understand more about what the pandemic has meant for Australia's homeless and for the services that support them, our guest today is Anne Mitchell. For over 20 years, Anne has worked with Melbourne's homeless youth through the STEPS Outreach Service. STEPS is a part of Concern Australia. STEPS workers and volunteers work with young people, children and families, providing long-term practical support, advocacy and material aid. The name STEPS comes from the Flinders Street STEPS, where in freer times you can see STEPS workers engaging with homeless young people. Anne Mitchell, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. 
even going into this pandemic, homelessness had been a, a growing problem for Victoria. Could you start with telling us a bit about what homelessness in Victoria looks like coming into this period? So between the 2016 census, because we've just had a recent one, so we've only got fairly old data, and the 2011 census, homelessness had gone up nearly 14% across Australia. So from 105,000 to 116,000. And of that number, just over 20% of them are living in Victoria. So in terms of the cohort that I work with, which is young people up to 25, that's 39% of the Victorian number. So the Victorian number is about 24,000 people are homeless on any one night. And the young people, there's almost 10,000 young people up to 25, which includes children. Some of our listeners will know this, but um, when we talk about homelessness, rough sleepers, those sleeping in the streets are are a small proportion of those. What kind of situations are we talking about people uh, living in? Working with young people, which is quite a different cohort, our people become homeless because generally they've come from a dysfunctional family background and sometimes it's easier to live on the street than it is to live at home, which is not to say it's easy to live on the street or to become homeless. So they will have left home because of abuse, neglect, physical, verbal or sexual abuse or all of the above. Some sort of trauma we find most of our young people have definitely experienced trauma and therefore will have some mental health problems based on their environment and situation. A lot of our young people are also in out-of-home care, which means that they were removed from their homes by the department, which will be because of one of those reasons. You know, for young people in out-of-home care who've then maybe gone into foster care but maybe not lasted in foster care and had a lot of different placements, they have so many problems. Over 50% of young people leaving care end up homeless, which is a really, really sad statistic. So the young people that we work with tend to be the people at the end of the spectrum who have complex issues. And we meet them in the city. So we do street outreach in the city one night a week. So most of our young people we would meet in the city so they can self-refer to us so we can just get to know them. Then if they want support, we can continue to support them during the daytime and provide intensive long-term support, basing it on a trauma-informed assertive outreach model and a strengths-based model. So looking for the strengths in young people and finding them. A lot of the children in those numbers would be coming from family violence. So they may be homeless with their mother and they may be in a domestic violence refuge or something like that and that would still be come under the definition of homelessness. So homelessness, the definition is not having a safe, stable, long-term place to live that you can call home. So that can include crisis accommodation, refuges, rough sleeping that we spoke about but really is only about 7% of the homeless population. And for our young people, they tend to be the hidden homeless because often they're couch surfing. So couch surfing means they're sleeping on someone's couch or floor, but it's not their permanent place. And at any stage, they can be asked to leave. And that's why we don't often see some of those young people. They might be living in boarding houses, overcrowded dwellings. All of those things will come under the definition of homelessness. What other added challenges does homelessness create and what are the wellbeing challenges that you're often working with those young people experiencing homelessness? The longer someone is homeless, then people that they meet who are also homeless or on the street will become their family. 
So very quickly, people who we meet on the street will call older people that they meet, mum and dad or brother or sister, because they're looking for a family. Everybody wants somewhere where they can belong. So the longer they're on the street, the more their loyalty to their other people that they've met, and it's harder to get them off the street. Therefore, that's their place where they feel like they belong. So the earlier and the quicker we can rehouse someone, the better. Or reconnect them with their family if that's possible. You mentioned that STEPS primarily works with young people, but in preparing for this show, you also talked a bit about increasing numbers of older people, particularly women, becoming homeless. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Well, because we're in the city one night a week doing street outreach at night time, we meet the older homeless population as well. So we get to know them because we're there every week. I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, so you get to know a lot of people. And that actually helps our credibility because often the older person may say, will you come and speak to this younger person? They're homeless or they need help. And so you get your credibility from knowing the older homeless person. Uh, But yeah, in terms of the statistics, they were saying that one of the biggest or fastest growing number of people is women over 55. That's not the cohort that we work with, but certainly in terms of the stats, it is a growing group of people who are homeless in terms of family breakdown, divorce, women not having as much superannuation often as men, maybe not earning the same wage as men. They are definitely seeing that in the stats. Most of your work is face-to-face. You've always a face-to-face support model and that relationship and connection being very important. Can you tell us what the experience was like for the shutdown? How, what impact did it initially have on you and your services? And then how did that sort of evolve and clarify over time? We're called Steps because traditionally we've sat on the steps of Flinders Street Station in Melbourne at night time and got to know young homeless people in a fairly laid-back way. It might be just talking about their football team until we get to know them better because obviously young people don't trust adults easily, especially if they haven't met adults that they can trust, especially if they've been in abusive relationships with adults. So street outreach is, is a mainstay of what we do, but during COVID we have not been able to do that except in times when we've opened up, which has not been often. So rather than do that because we don't want people to gather in a group in the city So we are, however, allowed to deliver essential supplies to people. So that might be groceries, PPE equipment, clothing, whatever, food vouchers. And so we can go and visit somebody, not go into their building and wearing a mask, meet them outside, stand a couple of metres away and still have a conversation. And I think that's been so valuable because people need face-to-face contact, even if it's with a mask on. People have missed out so much on connection and often our young people are isolated anyway. Often they don't have pro-social skills. They don't have a lot of connection to the mainstream community. To see somebody who cares makes a massive difference. So we are, as essential workers, we are privileged that we can at least still go and see our young people and still have a chat to them and see how they are. Also, with some of my young people, I've been going for a walk with them. So we just go for a walk for an hour, which is a great way to have a chat. And once again, social distance, wear our masks, but that's been a lovely way to get to know people. And, you know, some of my young people have said to myself or other workers, this is the only time I get out of the house is when I go for a walk with the worker. So obviously that's better for people's well-being to get outside, to get your vitamin D, to go and look at some trees or look at something beautiful, makes a massive difference to your sense of well-being. So that's what we've been doing. And, you know, one of the biggest things I realised last year, apart from the frustration of COVID and being locked down, 
was the generosity of others. And people just came out of the woodwork wanting to help, which I think is amazing. And I think part of that may have been that people were sitting in their houses and just had more time to think, well, I don't like being stuck at home, but at least I do have a roof and I do have a door that locks and I've got food in the fridge. And what about people who don't have those things? So with some of our amazing partners like Igniting Change, who have been amazing and connected us to lots of networks, we have had Caulfield Grammar and Lauriston Girls School providing groceries and care packs of toiletries. We had the RACV providing us with cooked meals because their restaurants didn't have anybody in them. So they thought, well, let's do something, keep people employed. And, and I think they were cooking a thousand meals a week or 2000 meals a week, which is lovely. And then they would come and deliver them to us. Ned Whiskey provided us with boxes and boxes of hand sanitizer. And so just the generosity of people, I don't think people realise how much people actually care and they really want to help. I think sometimes in the media we get this view that people are quite insular and selfish, but they're not. They're absolutely not. And that can be someone from any socioeconomic group. So we meet people who are very well off and we also meet people who are not well off and they might give their last $10, but they really want to help. And I think that is so refreshing and positive. One of my favourite commentaries about the pandemic was an article written a little while ago that said um, all of those post-apocalyptic movies that we watch where it's every man for himself uh, during a pandemic turned out to be completely wrong. In so many ways, it's shown a, a sense of solidarity and ability for people to look outside themselves during this time. You said early in the pandemic period, the Victorian government housed a lot of homeless people in hotel accommodation. Do you want to tell us a bit about what the experience was like for the people you worked with and and what we learned from that process? So anybody who was rough sleeping was offered a hotel. And across Victoria, there were 2,000 people in hotels, which was a wonderful emergency response by the state government. Um, Not a long-term solution, but definitely a good emergency response People who are sleeping rough obviously can't social distance. It's hard to hand sanitise or do all those other things that we were asked to do because of COVID. As a long-term solution, people got sick of being in hotels. They felt isolated in hotels. One of our young people that we delivered groceries to was in a hotel. When we got she got the food that we had delivered to her, she said, oh, thank you so much. I am scared to go out because I don't want to get COVID and I haven't eaten since yesterday lunchtime. People were fearful. They were scared, uh, you know, especially at the start, maybe didn't have great education around what to do. And so we were also able to deliver masks and PPE equipment. The CWA actually made us about 100 non-disposable masks for people, material masks, which was lovely. And so being able to give out all those things was so helpful for people and just being able to even reassure them. One of the things that I have realised, though, for our children as well, they need to have a sense of certainty and they need to have a sense of hope. And so we work with children, generally the children of previous clients that we've supported And we have a little project which is called uh, Hope for the Future Scholarship Program. And we do that in partnership with the Rotary Club of Central Melbourne. Through that, we work with school-aged young people and children to help them stay connected to education. So as we know, education is one of the main pathways out of generational poverty. However, during online learning, 
I have become very aware of the digital divide between the cohort we work with and the mainstream society. So a lot of our children and young people did not have any digital devices in their house. Maybe their parent had a phone. They, you know, One of my young people who was in secondary school didn't have a phone and didn't know how to use a mobile phone. So the school eventually provided a laptop, which was part of the state government initiative, but it took about two months to get the laptop. Then he was provided with dongles with prepaid internet, but no one in his household knew how to use that. So the school would ring up and say, why haven't you connected? But nobody actually knew how to connect. And if there was a problem, they didn't know how to fix it. So some of those young people really have just, they're still back there. They're they're going to be 18 months behind educationally. They simply have not moved forward. And that's really sad. Other young people have, you know, it depends how well-resourced your carers or the people that you live with are. But other people, like some of our children, we would have our family support worker online, playing snakes and ladders with them online and reading books with them online and getting them to read to them. And so for some people, I don't think it has affected them in that way. But for our kids who already were not doing well, maybe had no friends and were at least having those social groups at school. And so they've seen nobody. And the other thing about the online learning School is often a safe, protective place for people who are coming from an abusive place. And often school can say there will be a teacher who will know if they're not at school. Well, why aren't they at school? I'll check up on them. And if they do come to school with bruises, then they'll check why have they got bruises on them. Or if they do come to school super upset or super angry, someone will talk to them and say, what's the matter? What happened on the weekend? But the children haven't had that during this time. I think the ramifications of that are going to be ongoing for a long time. So those isolating things certainly have exacerbated mental health in our children and our young people. But one of the factors that has made a difference is having someone who rings or turns up on the doorstep and has some food vouchers or has something funny like a care pack and can help them out. So some of my disadvantaged children, I assign them community volunteer mentors. And one of the mentors, as he was unable to see his child during lockdown, made him up a beautiful care pack and had it delivered to the front door and it had the child's name on it. And in it, he had put a book and some Lego and some Beyblades and all sorts of things. And he had an action plan. So as a little fruggle thing, this scary little monster, see if you can scare each of your parents and your brothers and sisters with the fruggle. And when you've done it, tick the plan and send me a photo or get mum to send me a photo. And so those sorts of things, I think, make such a difference because we want our children to have some joy. And I think also for all of our young people that we work, we want them to have some structure. So the structure might be on Wednesdays, you go for a walk with your worker. And that's something to look forward to. Whereas if we're just uncertain and chaotic and don't know what's happening, and we're not getting clear messages from media, then What do you hold on to, especially when you've already got complex issues and mental health problems? You spoke quite a bit about connection and or isolation during this period. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the various ways in which you would homeless young people would usually be able to connect and a bit about how that's been impacted by a pandemic. And I guess it's coming through with what you're saying, just how important that is to these young people. So often younger and older people who are homeless would turn up to a food van. St Vinnie's food van the big umbrella in the city, lots of those things. And they would sit down and they would have a chat. 
and they know the workers and so they see the workers every week and have a chat to them. Or they could go to the Salvos Cafe and they would sit in the Salvos Cafe in Burke Street and, and they might go there three times a day. You know, they might go there for three meals a day. But with the lockdowns, they've only been able to go and receive takeaway food. So everybody across the board has missed that sort of connection. And the young people also would be able to do things like turn up to the YSAS Day program, turn up to Headspace and have a chat to somebody. Well, all those things are not available at the moment. Osenham House, which provides crisis accommodation, normally has a day drop-in centre and a cafe. While they still have the accommodation, the day drop-in centre and the cafe have had to be closed for months. And so you can see that's a massive gap in people's connection. In terms of the young people, there is a good initiative called From Homeless to a Home, which aims to house over 1,800 people who were housed in hotels. So it's people who really have complex needs, which is fantastic from my point of view, because often they're the people who slip through the cracks. In terms of our young people, you know, I've had people who've been to multiple hotels, been evicted from hotels. I had one person who was in seven hotels. And that person has now got his permanent accommodation, which is amazing. And that accommodation comes with a support package because Even though we all think, great, they've got a roof over their head and that is great. In terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, until you have shelter and warmth and safety, I think safety is such a big word, such an important word, until you feel safe, you can't make other decisions. So you can't start to say, what are my hopes and goals and dreams? And let's start meeting them. But once they get into their own accommodation, a lot of people really need intensive support to maintain that accommodation and to not just say stuff and I'll just go back to the street or this is too hard. I don't know how to pay all these bills. I don't know how to clean my house. I don't like having four walls around me. So I'm really glad to know that those 1800 placements come with support packages for 18 months. I think they need more than 18 months and some people definitely will. And I guess that's one of the good things about what we do. So we support people over a long term. And because we do that, we see great successes, but you need that long term, even if it's just to maintain someone and keep them alive till they they grow out of adolescence and they get a little bit wiser. You touched on a moment ago, some of the experiences of young people just in relation to COVID itself. How has that experience been for young people in terms of the information they've got, where they get their information from? And you mentioned the need for certainty in such an uncertain time. How do they access that information and what's that experience been like? Well, I think there has been some quite good education. In terms of places like CoHealth, they can roll up there, the living room, youth projects in Hosea Lane, they, they could roll up there and get good health information. They were providing vaccinations if they wanted to be vaccinated. So were the Salvos in Burke Street. They had vaccination tent outside. So there was a lot of support for people and a lot of explanation for people. Yeah, it's just about trying to maintain people and trying to still do some of those self-soothing things. So can we at least go for a walk? Can we go and get a takeaway hot chocolate? And having a structure around those things though. So on Tuesday, we go for a walk and have a hot chocolate or on Thursday, we have a Zoom meeting. And, you know, moving forward now, definitely need to provide more certainty for people because otherwise it's just that fear-based behaviour. And people who've been homeless, I guess that's the thing about moving into accommodation as well. They've been in that survival mode. So fight, flight or freeze. So I'm leaving for the day. What? Where am I going to eat today? Where am I going to sleep tonight? What am I going to do to keep myself safe? So then be in safe accommodation. I think sometimes 
you have a lot of time then to think about things and to think about past issues and that can come crashing down a bit. So that's why I think people need a lot of support also just to settle into housing and to maintain housing. And then as they do that, then let's get people into community groups. Do they want to go and do a painting class? You know, one of the things I love uh, with our young people is helping them to develop generosity and gratitude. And I think once young people have developed some sort of gratitude and generosity, it's such a sign of healing because they're no longer in that victim mentality. And so we will encourage people, come and help us wrap up Christmas presents. Come and give out our Christmas presents with us, whatever it is, but it, it really does help people's well-being if they can help in some way. And one of the things we did this year we were able to do, luckily with our timing, was we had an event called Walk In My Shoes at Federation Square. And across a week at Fed Square, we had an exhibition of students' photography and designer t-shirt on the theme of youth homelessness. So it was the secondary school students as youth doing something for youth, so doing something for disadvantaged youth. And that was lovely for them. But also we set up a STEPS advisory group, which is young people with a lived experience of homelessness. And those young people came to the event, to the launch, which we had over 120 people attend. And one of them stood up and spoke and told his story. And the others had a uniform on and people knew they were there to come and talk to. So they were the expert. So people could come and say, what do I need to know about homelessness? They also gave us some answers, which we made into a poster. And we also, as part of that, put together an augmented reality experience called Walk In My Shoes. So the theme was to give young people who have experienced homelessness a voice, which I think is so important, but also to increase empathy and understanding in the community. Go to our website, which is concernaustralia.org.au forward slash steps, S-T-E-P-S. And then using your phone, if you point your phone at the poster, click on the QR code. The young person will stand up as a 3D animated character called Stevie and she will tell her story of her journey through homelessness. And that story was written using the actual words of two of our young people who have experienced homelessness. So it's very real. It's not made up. It is two young people's experience. And so, yeah, I suggest to your audience that they give that a go just to increase that empathy and understanding of youth homelessness. I'll put a link to it in our show notes and there is nothing like a really well done voice of people with lived experience telling you about their experience. It may not feel like it at the moment in Melbourne, but our vaccination rates are getting up and and hopefully without too far to go, there is a, a brighter future around the corner. I wonder if you'd had a chance to reflect a little bit about on this period and whether there are lessons that you'd think you'd like all of us to take forward, hopefully as we eventually get to a new normal at the other side of the pandemic. I think we've definitely learned to be flexible and that's always helpful. I think gratitude, as I spoke of, not just for our young people, but for ourselves. So to get up in the morning and instead of saying, oh, damn it, I'm stuck in my house and I can, you know, blah, blah, but to get up and say, wow, I'm so thankful that I have a house and that I can go walking in the bush and that I can go and look at beautiful things and just to get up in the morning and be and be thankful. So, so to say three things you're grateful for, and there's always something. I'm grateful that I woke up this morning. You know, whatever it is, it can be smaller, it can be big. And then encouraging our young people to, as I said, using a strengths-based. So just to be able to say to our young people, I am so proud of how you're going. 
And, you know, like one of my young people is now working as a truck driver and she's doing really well. And I just, I am so proud of you and you are amazing. And I think they need to hear that and they may have never heard that. Even the people around us might need to hear that because everybody's struggling a bit. Just to remember that there are people out there who care and if you're feeling isolated and stuck, then reach out and talk to somebody because it's very important and go out the door into the sunshine. Our guest today has been Anne Mitchell from Steps Outreach Service. Anne, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you. 